0: Hey, Mike here, and if you like what I'm doing on the podcast and elsewhere, and if you wanna help me help more people get into the best shape of their lives, please do consider picking up one of my best-selling health and fitness books, including Bigger, Leaner, Stronger for Men, Thinner, Leaner, Stronger for Women, my Flexible Dieting Cookbook, The Shredded Chef, and my 100% practical and hands-on blueprint for personal transformation Inside and Outside of the Gym, The Little Black Book of Workout Motivation. Now, these books have sold well over 1 million copies and have helped thousands of people build their best bodies ever. And you can find them on all major online retailers like Audible, Amazon, iTunes, Kobo, and Google Play, as well as in select Barnes & Noble stores. Again, that's Bigger, Leaner, Stronger for Men. Thinner, Leaner, Stronger for Women, The Shredded Chef, and The Little Black Book of Workout Motivation. Oh, and I should also mention that you can get any of the audiobooks 100% free when you sign up for an Audible account, which is the perfect way to make those pockets of downtime like commuting, meal prepping and cleaning more interesting entertaining and productive so if you want to take audible up on that offer and if you want to get one of my audiobooks for free go to www.legionathletics.com slash audible that's l-e-g-i-o-n athletics slash a-u-d-i-b-l-e and sign up for your account Hello and welcome, welcome to Muscle for Life. I am Mike Matthews. And in this episode, we're gonna talk about supplements and not fat loss and muscle gain supplements, which is what we hear the most about in the supplement space. But instead, we're gonna be talking about strength, supplementing for strength. And in particular, the best supplements for getting stronger, how well they work, and the best way to take them. And it's not just going to be me, but I invited Dr. Eric Trexler to come back on the podcast to discuss this, to discuss the science behind strength supplements, including two of the most popular and effective ones out there, caffeine and creatine now in case you are not familiar with eric he is the director of education over at strongerbyscience.com and he is one of the contributors to mass which is one of my favorite monthly Research reviews, which you can also learn about over at strongbyscience.com. Now, in this episode, Eric answers a number of questions, including Does caffeine tolerance affect its performance boost? Should you load creatine or not? Does creatine cause hair loss? That's a big one that I get asked about, a question that I get asked about very often. And if you want to learn more about, why some people think creatine can cause hair loss, and how likely this actually is, then you definitely want to listen to this episode. Uh, We also talk about nitric oxide boosters, which are actually worth taking and which are not, and more. So if you are currently taking supplements, if you are currently spending money on supplements, and if you would also like to gain strength faster, then I think you are going to like this episode. Here's the interview. Eric, thanks for uh, coming back on the show to enlighten us on Ergogenic Supplements.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on and uh, congratulations on the new books. That was nice to have done. That was a pain in the ass, that entire
0: project, because it wasn't just updating the books themselves, the written books. It was also re-recording the audio books and then there's like workout journals that go with it, but it all is done. So that's nice. And the release went well, sold a lot of books and getting a lot of good feedback from people I particularly like the feedback from people who have read the previous editions and who really appreciate the new editions and that they weren't just like, oh, it's, you know, a new forward and like five new pages of content, new edition, like these are truly new editions kind of started from scratch. So, you know, it feels good. I'm sure you've experienced, you know, where you put a lot of time into a project and it comes out the way that, you know, more or less that you envisioned. It's, it's nice.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I have to admit, I hadn't read the earlier editions, but I did look at the new editions. I think you did a really nice job with it. Thanks.
0: Yeah. I'm very happy with Particularly, who those books are for. I think that it's really the best I can do for the people who those books are meant for. And really, what that comes down to is let's just say guys who have yet to gain their first 25 to 30 pounds of muscle, and for women who have yet to gain maybe about half that. That's the simplest way to boil it down to who those books are for. And they really, I think, give people. I try to give them everything they need and nothing they don't need to be able to do that and maybe even go a bit further than that. But there is a point where the training programs in those books, it's just not enough volume. Uh, There's a point where that becomes maintenance volume. And that's also acknowledged in the book that I don't mean for these to be the end all be all, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And I'll tell you what, the more that I make content, whether it's written or audio or whatever, the more you realize you have to have a pretty specific person in mind. Yes. When you're making it. And so if somebody's like saying, oh, check out my content. And I say, who's it for? And they say, I mean, basically everybody then I'm like, ooh, okay, let's see how this goes. (laughs) It's like a little bit of a red flag, you know? Absolutely. I mean, in marketing, that's a cliche. If it's for
0: everybody, it's for nobody. And that's very true. Obviously, there are exceptions to any good rule, but this is marketing 101, right? Anyone listening is if you Google like marketing avatar, you'll learn about this exact thing where many experienced marketers, what they recommend and what they do is they get very specific as to who they are talking to. They'll personalize it. Like Mary is 39 years old. She has three kids and she's a lawyer and this is what her life looks like. And they gather this information through research, through speaking with their target audience and through reading. You can find a lot of stuff online where people are opening up and sharing details of their lives and piecing that together so you have a very clear idea who this person is, what their needs are, what their pains are, what they've done before that has worked, hasn't worked. The more that information you know, it's not just the better you can sell to those people. I mean, yes, that's true, but also the better you can serve them. Assuming you want to make good products and services that actually serve people's needs, you need to make sure that you really understand who those people are and what their needs are and the context of those needs because that matters, especially in how you're going to communicate to them.
1: Yeah. I mean, all this marketing stuff is brand new to me. I mean, you know my background. I basically spent the last six years in a lab in the basement doing a bunch of supplement research. <laughs> so now that I'm out interacting with people in the industry, this marketing stuff that everybody's known for ages, is it's all new to me. But yeah, I mean, my exposure to marketing was when you're a supplement researcher and you see a lot of the marketing that happens in the supplement industry, it's like marketing sounds like a bad word. Yeah, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like you see some pretty wild stuff out there, but it makes you appreciate the good marketing and the honest companies even more. Yeah. It's it's basically synonymous with
0: scamming. I wonder if those two words have the same number of letters, then that could be the joke is how do you spell marketing in the supplement space? S-C-A-M-M-I-N-G. And there always will be that. There's like that in any industry. I mean, it's Baked into the DNA of marketing. You know, I'm rereading a book right now, classic advertising book called Breakthrough Advertising. It's not a good place to start if you're just learning marketing, but if you are more experienced and especially if you're looking for more sophisticated, high level copywriting advice, it's a great book to read. But it's just struck me how a big part of selling, and this, this book was written. 66 is when it was first published and written by a guy named Eugene Schwartz, genius marketing guy, one of the famous greats, right? And a lot of the examples that are being used to illustrate the principles he's sharing are blatant lies. It's exaggeration and lies. And that there was a time when people were more trusting of advertising and you could get away with that. But by exploiting that and taking advantage of people, that trust has eroded over time. So, you have people in general are much more skeptical of advertising as they should be. But it's, just, it's not that you have to lie even to use the information in the book. It's just kind of funny to me how I would say amorally, the information is presented when... Of course, Eugene knew that this rose bush is not going to bloom a billion roses a day like the ad says. I mean, not literally, but there were some ads in the book that stood out as like, this is so over the top. It's such bullshit. I'm surprised anybody even believed it. And it's not that he didn't know that. It's just that, well, that's what you did. I mean, yeah, you have to exaggerate. You have to sensationalize. And so what if it's not exactly true? People are still going to be happy. And you can get into rationalizations and you can tell yourself that what it boils down to is the ends justifies the means, right? That line of thinking is like the slipperiest slope ever. And it can be applied to anything. And that has happened a lot in advertising. And that's why we are where we're at now where people are so skeptical and cynical as they should be. You know, it was just, it's just an interesting observation. And so we still see that in the supplement space, just blatant lying. And there always will be a market for that because okay, you're new to fitness. You're not stupid. You're ignorant. You don't know much. And you have someone like me or maybe you saying, oh, you want to lose 30 pounds? All right. Well, let me just Explain to you a few things that you're going to need to know to do that safely and healthily and effectively. Let's go over energy balance. Yes, calories matter. You can't just eat whatever you want. Pills and powders aren't going to do it for you. You're going to want to exercise and it's going to take a little bit of time. It's going to take a few months and but you can get there. And then you have, I don't even know, I do not pay attention to YouTube, but you have someone on YouTube who just says, hey, uh, so if you just follow my special keto diet protocol and take my special keto burn pills, you'll lose 30 pounds in 20 days. And the dude looks good. He's jacked. Of course, he's on drugs. And you're that consumer. And I understand if you're like, you know, it sounds a little bit too good to be true, but I might as well give it a try. I mean, my doctor says keto's safe and the pills i my doctor looked at them and they don't really have anything in them that is unsafe so sure why not it's 30 bucks and you know another 30 bucks for his like keto shred ebook or something i might as well try it and then of course it doesn't work or things don't go quite as planned and eventually that person becomes more sophisticated and then i hope they come back to people like you and me who are like okay so you tried the keto shred and that didn't quite work right well okay let's talk about energy balance let's talk about exercise let's talk about healthy weight loss. So, you know, it just is what it is. And I guess we can say that in a way we are benefiting from the scammers and that those people have very high churn businesses and they spend a lot of money to acquire new customers and get new people into something of a fitness habit, or at least get them to the point where they're doing something now. And many of those people ultimately find their way to people like us.
1: You know, I never thought of it that way, but I guess that is a constructive way
0: to think about it. I disagree with what they're doing, but there are positive side effects. Now, I'd say they are probably negatives, almost certainly, and it's certainly not necessary to do it that way. You can take stuff that actually works and kind of sexify it, give it some sizzle so the average everyday person will be attracted to it. You don't have to just blatantly mislead people and lie to them but it's not all bad. And then there are people who do through calorie restriction, of course, that it doesn't have to be keto, but they do end up losing some weight and they do feel better. And the keto pills didn't do anything, but it just helped them build their ritual and build their routine and blah, blah, blah. And again, that's where that ends justifies the means thinking gets dangerous and that it's easy if you are a scammer and your livelihood depends on believing They rarely just outright. I've known a couple over the years who have just basically admitted it. Say, yeah, I don't give a shit. I sell pills in a bottle. What do I care? I make a million dollars a month personally, so don't care. And But that's not common. Commonly, they're like politicians. Everything is for the greater good and they always have everyone else's best interests in mind. They're so altruistic and they just love helping people. I do think a lot of these people have actually convinced themselves of this bullshit because, again, their livelihood depends on eating the bullshit every day and making sure that the bullshit drowns out any sort of cognitive dissonance. I don't know. I guess that's just psychology, right? And we can be here and play our part in like helping the people who fall out of their orbits, basically.
1: Yeah. I mean, the way I view my role... I've got a podcast, I've got a lot of website content and we do a a monthly research review called, uh, it's called mass monthly applications and strength sport,
0: which is fantastic. By the way, I recommend everybody check it out. It's at strongerbysciencecom slash mass, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. But you know, th- the way I view what I do, my contribution, I make virtually no helpful contributions to the business end of things. <laughs> so I basically say, ah, that'll be taken care of. But the way I view it is if I can put out good content that can somehow find its way to people that can help them have a little bit more autonomy, over their health, over their life, something that can boost their self-efficacy and help them take control of things that matter to them—that's a positive thing. So I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not. The business stuff and like how do I reach these people—I've left that in the hands of much smarter people than me. But you know, for me coming from a science background, you know, I did my PhD at UNC, so I was. Just Trained purely as a scientist. My whole thing is how do I see what people are interested in in fitness, use my training and background to try to distill that into usable information, and then put it on the platforms. It's so far so good. I think we've done a lot of good. And that's one of the reasons I really like to talk about supplements. You know, on the kind of fitness conference circuit, I've been invited out now and then to come give a talk about supplements. And there's always a ton of questions after I speak. A really disproportionate amount of questions. And I'd like to believe that's because I'm a very interesting, engaging speaker, but I don't think that's true. I think what's going on is there is a huge thirst for information pertaining to supplements because there's a lot of distrust. You see the supplement advertisements and it's pretty easy to say, well, I'm very skeptical about that claim. Or, you know, you see somebody spouting off some pseudoscience about supplements and it's easy to have skepticism there. But the question is, where do I get the good information? I think now more than ever, there's a lot of people out there giving good evidence-based supplement information and education. But, you know, I've kind of I view that as a pretty important part of what I can do as somebody who has actually run studies on dietary supplements. I think it's important to try to distill that down into usable information that's accurate to try to get that out to people so they can make informed decisions.
0: Really tried to do that, even having a supplement company. I mean, one of the first things that if you poke around our website, you'll see is me explaining that you don't need any of these supplements. You don't need supplements at all to get into good shape and to stay healthy. However, if you have the budget and inclination, there are some that you should consider taking. And for different reasons, like something like protein powder is mostly just for convenience, whereas something like creatine is mostly for performance and body composition. But I think the first thing that people need to understand about supplements of all kind is none are necessary. There are a few, I think, health-related ones that are smart to take like vitamin D for example some sort of omega 3 supplement for example vitamin K is something that at least I'm happy that we have a good amount of K1 and K2 in our multivitamin but if we're talking about body composition or performance stuff in body composition just so people know what I'm referring to talk about I'm talking about muscle building or fat loss you do not need any supplements at all to accomplish those things fairly quickly as quickly as you can and effectively there are some supplements that will speed things up a bit if you don't mind again spending the money and swallowing some pills or drinking some powders then i guess there's no reason to not do it but i think mystery surrounding supplements is there just is there are people like me probably not as many especially not as many people like me who that actually sell supplements who are saying this putting them into perspective i think that they are supplementary by definition and they are the really the cherry on top there are a lot more people out there who either have supplement companies or who are sponsored by supplement brands who are trying to make supplements out to be a lot more than they are. And that alone is confusing to people. And I understand because they might check out someone like me or someone like you, you have uh, certainly more credentials than I have, but they might listen to what I have to say and read my content and be like, Oh, he seems to know what he's talking about. And what he's saying seems pretty reasonable, but then they might come across someone else who let's say someone on Instagram who's jacked. And also they might even have some credentials as well that are relevant. They may have a PhD as well well and they may sound
1: like they know what they're talking about and they're saying something very different so who do you listen to yeah i mean it's tough to try to get that information but there's people out there we just got to <laughs> we got to keep writing and doing interviews and my challenge is if it's somebody like you or me or whoever's out there trying to get more good information out about supplements we have to take it upon ourselves to make the information accessible and i don't mean like physically in terms of access like how do i get to it but i mean make it easy to understand message that still contains all the nuance that you need. I mean, that's really the art of teaching. Know who you're communicating to. Exactly. Right. I mean, it goes back
0: to what we were saying previously. If you are communicating only if you're a scientist and you're communicating in a way that really only other scientists are going to be able to follow along and understand what you're saying don't then be disappointed when just everyday people looking to get fit dismiss what you're saying because they just, they don't get it. And they're not going to take the, who knows how many hours of time it would require to parse through all, even the jargon that you're using and spend time in dictionaries and try to piece together like, Oh, that's what he means. No, I mean, that's incumbent upon us, the people who are communicating. So again, if we are only intending to communicate to, in your case, let's say you're a scientist and you only intended for your work to be consumed by other scientists, well then great, put it in those terms. And most people would never give it a second look. But if you're saying, and I know you do a good job of this, one of the reasons why I want to have you back on the podcast, the first interview that we did is doing really well. I think it's coming up on close to 20,000 plays, which is great. And I got a lot of good feedback from it because, you do a good job explaining things in clear, practical terms without dumbing them down, making them though understandable to just somebody who is in very, maybe they're very informed by normal standards as far as fitness goes, maybe by your standards. I mean, I wouldn't even be very informed on many things by your standards, but it's you understand that. So I think you do a good job of that, but some people don't. Either they don't, they haven't realized being able to be understood is important or They have a self-importance thing where I've spoken to people where they just kind of were like, yeah, they see what I'm saying, but they still just want to do it their way because they're more into appearing smart and wanting people to praise them for how
1: many things they know than just give them good information. You know what I mean? It's bad, man. So when you're in the type of work that I do, if your message isn't resonating and people aren't enjoying your content and understanding your content, you have to take ownership of that. You can't blame the reader for not finding you interesting. You have to be interesting. And if they don't think you are, then you're not. So like there's a lot of times when I'm writing where the things that get me kind of academically jazzed up, I know that it's not what's going to be important to readers and it's not what's going to be interesting to readers. So I have to make sure that I'm focusing on them and not me. I mean, just this morning, I was exchanging emails with the statistician about, in your linear mixed models, why did you go with an unstructured covariance structure? I would have gone with an autoregressive covariance structure. No one wants to hear about that. Why would they? Like, I find it very exciting. And it was a very good conversation. Smart researcher, really good work. But nobody wants to hear about that. They want to hear about the study was about this particular topic. How do they use it? What can they expect if they do try to use that technique? So, yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> Supplements are, are a great example of where if you wanted to just pick through the studies and try to convince people that you knew what you were talking about, you could waste a lot of people's time that way. And you can make yourself feel really good about all the things you know. But realistically, people want to know, what can I use? Is it going to be safe? Is it going to be effective? And to what magnitude will it be effective? So for a lot of supplements, I find that, yeah, from a pure researcher standpoint, you could argue that that supplement in this study worked. But is that useful to anybody based on the outcome, based on the dosage, and based on the price? So there are some supplements out there, and this is a thing that causes a lot of confusion, where you might find a study and the conclusion of the study from the researcher's perspective is technically this worked, if we want to boil it down to a binary yes or no question. But then the practitioners have to come in, analyze kind of how that study was done and say, oh, I mean, it kind of technically worked from a researcher's perspective, but that is not going to be useful for you. So for me, you know, my big challenge that I'm enthusiastic about taking on is trying to help people figure out not which supplements technically work based on a statistical analysis, but which supplements make sense for them to take based on their goals and based on their needs ends up coming down to a fairly small list of things that work in specific contexts. And I always say, I mean, much like you've said already, you don't need this stuff, but this stuff actually would make sense and would have some meaningful amount of benefit for you.
0: That's the perfect segue into why don't we just start at the top of most people's lists, and that's caffeine. And I guess particularly for... Improving performance, right? We all know that it makes us less sleepy. And if we're not sensitized to it, it'll boost our metabolism a little bit. But beyond that, so let's talk about caffeine.
1: Yeah. So, caffeine's a big personal interest of mine. I currently have a really inappropriate amount in my system. So, Greg Knuckles and I, who is kind of the other half of Stronger by Science, we just got back from the European Powerlifting Conference over in London. And so I'm just like living on caffeine and very minimal sleep right now and <laughs> trying to get caught up. So caffeine is ubiquitous. By the way,
0: I'm just going to jump in there to share something that might be helpful to you and anybody else who travels. So this summer, a month or so ago, I took my family to Italy and I used an app called, I think it was Time Shift or Time Shifter. The app tries to make it seem like it's more sophisticated than it really is. But you put in your where you live and your current schedule, where you're going. And then it tells you when to sleep, when to expose yourself to sleep sunlight, when to have caffeine, when to not have caffeine just to help you get your circadian rhythm to adjust as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And it definitely helped. My wife's from Germany, so I've done many Europe trips and I've done it correctly and incorrectly in terms of managing the jet lag and the time change and I know how it's how bad it can suck for a few days bad if you do it incorrectly, but if you do it correctly, you can have basically no jet lag. So anyways, just throwing that out there as a tip to you and anybody else who might travel. I know there are other apps. That's just the one that I used. And of course, the main levers are sunlight and sleep, caffeine, and then using melatonin. Also, apparently there's research that shows it is particularly good for helping your body adjust in this way. So they recommend that as long as it's okayed by your doctor, blah, 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 that you use melatonin as well when you're going into a new time zone. But Anyway, just throwing it out there that I was actually impressed by, I had basically no jet lag. Like I got there and woke up the next day and felt totally fine. And that was that. And then I arrived back home, woke up the next day, felt totally fine. And that was that.
1: Circadian biology is extremely fascinating. I'm glad you brought that up, a pretty key consideration with caffeine. So... To put a, just a general overview, caffeine, as I was saying, it's ubiquitous. Everybody uses caffeine, not everybody, but very, very common, even in people that aren't that into fitness, right? You just get to the office in the morning and there's coffee everywhere. When it comes to performance, caffeine has a really long track record. I think some of the earliest studies looking at some of the physical performance-related effects of caffeine go all the way back to the late 1800s. There's some like really cool, very early studies saying like, hey, it looks like caffeine affects some of these physical outcomes. Now, the modern kind of wave of caffeine research largely goes back to the 1970s with research. At first, they were mostly interested in endurance performance, and caffeine's got a really long, really good track record of enhancing endurance performance. In the last two or three decades, there's been a lot more stuff looking at strength, power, and non-endurance activities. And right now, I think it's pretty safe to say that caffeine has its largest effects and most reliable effects on endurance performance, but it also has meaningful effects on strength, power, and what you'd call strength endurance, which, you know, the easy way to operationalize that would be you would have got 10 reps without it, but since you had it, you got 12 or 13. Okay, so there's a really nice umbrella review by someone that I've collaborated with, and but it was all over <laughs> email. So I don't know if I actually pronounce his name right when I talk about him. But Jozo Gergic, if you listen to our podcast on Stronger by Science, you'll know that I mispronounce every single name I ever try to say. So I'm sure that's <laughs> wrong. I like that. That's like
0: something from like a movie character. You know what I mean? That's their tick is they just pronounce every name wrong and it's like the recurring joke throughout the movie.
1: Yeah. No, it's certainly not planned. (laughs) I just mispronounce every single name. Yeah. Some of them have been just remarkably embarrassing. But in any case, a really nice big umbrella review summarizing all the effects of caffeine on a variety of performance outcomes. And generally speaking, caffeine, if you... Ingest it at about three to six milligrams per kilogram of body mass, you know, depending on your body size ends up being somewhere in the 200 to 600 milligram ballpark, give or take. If you ingest that type of dose 30, 60, maybe 90 minutes before exercise, it does seem to have a meaningful beneficial effect. Now, I mentioned that the the circadian biology that you alluded to is kind of important. One of the things that I always like to remind people about with caffeine is that caffeine can have a pretty pronounced effect on disrupting sleep. And even if it's not ingested super close to bedtime, there are some research showing that even six, eight hours before bed, if you're particularly sensitive to caffeine, you might see that the caffeine is still disrupting the duration and quality of the sleep that you get. Common misconception, though, a lot of people will they'll ingest a cup of coffee or something and fall asleep an hour later and say, nope, not me. I sleep fine. One of the things that's really hard to convince people, but you got to kind of get the awareness out there. Just because you fell asleep an hour after that coffee does not mean your sleep quality was uninterrupted.
0: You might wake up more often or you may not even wake up right but your sleep is just worse. Your body's not able to move through the different cycles or phases of each cycle efficiently. And you you correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's I've experienced it myself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm not a sleep expert. I try to do it every night, but I still haven't developed expertise. But anyway, with sleep. (laughs) Sleep mastery. Wouldn't that be amazing? (laughs) It's like when people are like, well, I have no training in nutrition, but I do eat sometimes. So I might as well give an opinion. Yeah. I try to sleep most nights, but I'm not an expert in sleep science but there's a whole field of sleep research and yeah sleep is not a binary variable it's not like did you sleep yes there is that kind of cyclical nature of all these interrelated sleep cycles that you go through in a given night of sleep high doses of caffeine even if they're multiple hours before the onset of sleep, there's research suggesting that they can impact the quality of that sleep. So whenever, you know, I work with a lot of clients, I coach for Stronger by Science. And when whenever I have clients who tell me they have sleep issues, the very first thing I do, I say, are you like extremely stressed out? The second thing I bring up is how much caffeine are we having every day? And when is it being ingested? And you'd be amazed how often... Just by doing a little caffeine audit, adjusting the time of day that caffeine's being consumed, a lot of sleep issues go away. It's pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah. I mean, I had reached out to you uh, because I was having sleep issues, which just kind of went away for no good reason, which I thought because, you know, we went through the, the checklist and there was nothing major that I was doing wrong. Really, I tried all the obvious things. So, that was, of course, one of the first things was what's caffeine like? And for me, it was like, well, I
1: have three shots of espresso at 9 a.m. Yeah, that's not the problem. <laughs> right, yeah. One of the things that's cool about caffeine, the research that's been going on the last 10 or 15 years has been awesome because we finally graduated past the like initial stage of like, I don't know, does it do things? The answer is yes, it does. But now we're getting into the more refined research questions. You know, comparing sources of caffeine, comparing men versus women, male versus female responses to caffeine, caffeine throughout the menstrual cycle, all these different facets. One of the really cool things is the genetic links. We know the key genes that you inherit that influence caffeine metabolism. And now we finally are able to actually do some of these studies where it's very easy and affordable to actually figure out a person's genotype for many of these genes. We know that your genetic predisposition has a huge influence on how rapidly you metabolize caffeine, which in hindsight makes so much sense. I wrote a book chapter for a textbook on caffeine a while ago with some colleagues. They're like, Eric, you handle the metabolism part. And I'm like, all right you go through the, the literature and you'll see estimates of the half-life of caffeine as low as three hours and as high as 12, which is incredibly different. I mean, a, a three-hour versus a 12-hour half-life is remarkably different. And so, you start looking back at all these variable responses in, in the early metabolism studies on caffeine. And in hindsight, it's like, yep, that makes sense. Now, we know all these things that affect caffeine metabolism, the genetics, the other behaviors you might be engaging in that can influence caffeine metabolism, drug and food interactions. So with caffeine, I wish I could say like, if you go to bed at 10 p.m., you have to stop at 6 p.m. But when you consider the complications when it comes to your genetics, the exact dosing, the different food and drug interactions with caffeine metabolism. It's really the type of thing that you have to just troubleshoot and figure it out.
0: Yeah, Just because I'm personally curious, what are some of those food interactions and then what are some behavioral factors?
1: Well, so behavioral probably wasn't the right term. But if you look at different things that affect caffeine metabolism, it really comes down to anything that can affect the cytochrome P450 enzyme system in the liver. And so the P450 enzymes, if you take a pharmacology course, they are like the workhorses of the liver. If you're putting, you know, some kind of substance in your body, there's a decent chance the P450 enzymes, one of the many that make up the system, are gonna have to deal with it. And so some of the key like dietary things you can do would be grapefruits, grapefruit juice, and cruciferous vegetables, uh, and charred meat. These are all dietary things that can either increase or decrease the rate of caffeine metabolism. Huh. Which do which? Off the top of my head, I don't remember.
0: <laughs> I'm just I am genuine. I'm not trying to be honest, yeah. but I'm actually just curious. Like, really? I just, yeah,
1: that's like in my back pocket of like. What kind of foods could do it? These ones. The same thing, we know that there are several medications, again, that can either increase or decrease. You kind of have to look them up on a case-by-case basis because that enzyme system uh, has so many different things that can either induce... Or reduce the activity of any particular isozyme. That's one of the things that's tricky is it's not just a simple thing of like, oh, this one interacts with that particular isozyme because with those isozymes, you can either increase or decrease their activity depending on exactly what is kind of what the liver is dealing with. So, you can't just say, oh, these are all the foods that all inhibit. Some of them increase, some of them decrease the activity. There are a bunch of drugs. Hormone levels affect it. So throughout the menstrual cycle, the rate of caffeine metabolism can change using hormonal contraceptives because, I mean, it's essentially the same premise. Sex hormones can affect caffeine metabolism. There's been some research suggesting that things like exercise, age, a whole variety of demographic variables, and again, something like exercise or exposure to heat, there's a lot of research, some of which is stronger than others, but the general takeaway from that research, caffeine metabolism is affected by many, 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 many things. The take-home point for a person who uses caffeine is, if you were to ask me, hey, what kind of half-life can I expect for caffeine? I would say for most people, it's probably somewhere between four and eight hours, but there's a huge window of possibility depending on what else the liver is dealing with when it comes to caffeine metabolism. And just to be clear, that's half-life,
0: right? So, that means that half of it is still, half of the amount that you had is still in your system. Correct. Yeah. Just want to make that clear for people listening. It's not that in 48 hours, it's all gone. It's that these days, again, my sleep just tends to be better, so it's not it doesn't impact me. But in the past, when... I don't know. My sleep was worse for whatever reason. I generally go to bed around 10. I know from, I did a genetic test some time ago that I have, I don't remember, you probably know exactly what the technical term for it. There are two different enzymes, I guess, that it's probably one of the liver enzymes you mentioned. It might be both liver enzymes, but basically I have two fast metabolizing.
1: Oh, dude. Yeah. So you probably got your genes tested for the CYP1A2 isozyme. Yes. That sounds familiar
0: because I was remember going through, I could pull it up actually, but I'll do that while you're talking.
1: Yeah, so usually the CYP1A2 isozyme of the cytochrome P450 enzyme system is the one that's responsible for, usually they say about 95% of the variation in the rate of caffeine metabolism. So there are several other isozymes involved, but usually you don't even bother to... To check them out when it comes to metabolism of caffeine. You can also look at some genes that are related to the adenosine receptors, which are obviously very tied into the effects of caffeine, kind of separate from its metabolism. But in any case, CYP1A2 really does a lot of the work when it comes to caffeine metabolism. You basically get two copies of the gene. You could have two fast, two slow, or one fast and one slow. Now, the reason that I celebrated with you was because We're still trying to figure out exactly how your genes for that particular enzyme affect the wide variety of caffeine-related effects in the body. But for right now, currently, based on our very preliminary understanding, it seems that if you had a choice, you would prefer to have two fast copies. The research so far, which I want to really stress is preliminary, would suggest that the ideal scenario is being fast, fast. The probably worst scenario is being slow, slow. And then the middle ground would be one fast and one slow. For now, congratulations to you until we find out in 10 years that it's actually terrible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great success for now. Yeah, I just pulled up the report. Yes, CYP-1A2 result is AA. And they say that's the two copies of the rapid version of the enzyme is what it says. Nice. Anyway, so with having that for being what it is, If I had caffeine, even eight hours before bed, when I was having sleep troubles previously, I don't know how much was still left in my system by the time I go to bed, but, and this is not like I was being scientific and had tracking with a sleep log. And so I I may just not be remembering this exactly correctly, but it stood out enough in my mind for me to stop doing that because it just seemed like there was a higher chance that I was going to wake up more often that night than if I didn't have the caffeine at, and I'm talking at like one or 2 p.m.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's like when it comes to caffeine metabolism, we can figure out your genetics for CYP1A2, but there are still so many other inputs that can affect not just the rate of metabolism, but also how you experience the effects of caffeine. So when we talk rate of metabolism, we are literally only worried about how fast does it enter the bloodstream and then how rapidly is it cleared. That has nothing to do with binding to the receptor and then the downstream effects that result from that binding. There are so many pieces to that puzzle that that's kind of... You know, when you're like, hey, which ones affect it? And I was like, I don't know. There's a bunch of them. (laughs) Which direction? All over the place. Because what I usually do if somebody has sleep issues, it's such an immense amount of information about all the inputs that affect the rate of metabolism and also the resulting effects. It's like so much information. The way I operate, this is probably, I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, but. When I see an amount of information that I'm like, this is too much for me to memorize. (laughs) It's like enough information that I say, you know what that is? That's a folder on my computer that when this issue comes up, I pull it up and we systematically work our way through it because there are so many different inputs. It really is kind of like the type of thing where if I suspect that we've got a caffeine related issue, I say, okay, this is going to be a line of questioning. It's not just going to be like, "Uh, yeah, let me uh, make kind of a gut level observation and just shoot from the hip on this. What I do is I kind of get out my whole list of caffeine related considerations and then we have at it.
0: Makes sense. What about tolerance and particularly... In the context of improving performance, just to reiterate something you mentioned earlier is to really notice a difference in strength and power, you have to take a fair amount. Many people I've spoken to are surprised to hear that number of, you know, I've told people 400 milligrams, give or take, depending on your body size and whatever, but, you know, two to 600, that's like in one dose before you go train. Tolerance changes that though, right? Like if you're having caffeine every day and then try to go for even more because you're doing some heavy squats, it's not going to be as effective, right?
1: Yeah. And this is another one of those areas where I was like, when I kind of said the caffeine research is finally starting to get good, it's like, we're getting into these types of questions and the tolerance question, there's been a lot of back and forth in the research literature. And I think the best study we have on it came out a couple months ago, and Greg actually reviewed it in mass. We'd see a paper and they'd say, oh, there's no tolerance, you're fine for performance. And then another paper would come out and say, no, there's definitely a habituation effect, tolerance develops and the effects go down. But a lot of the research was very indirect. They would just like grab a group of people and say, hey, tell us how much caffeine you usually take in using a questionnaire and then say, oh, well, it looks like people responded kind of the same, whether they had a lot of caffeine in their questionnaire or very little. That's not a great way to actually assess that question. What you'd like to do is actually give people caffeine over a long period of time and see if the results start to wear off, right? I mean, intuitively, that's the most direct way to assess that. So right now... When we look at the literature on tolerance, there are certainly some aspects of caffeine where the development of tolerance is more pronounced than others. So like the initial heart rate and blood pressure responses are a good example where that tolerance can develop pretty quickly. There's some evidence that the diuretic effect that you can build up a tolerance to that. So diuretic diuresis basically means increased urine output. So When you're new to caffeine and you have a cup of coffee and you have to pee immediately, that's the diuresis there. We develop tolerance to that as well. Now, right now, the assessment of the literature for performance would suggest that to some degree, tolerance does seem to develop, but that doesn't mean that performance benefits necessarily disappear. The research right now, I think you could make the case would indicate that the magnitude of the effect does seem to kind of diminish over time to a partial degree, assuming that you keep the dosage the same. So I would suspect that in in the study that showed that if they kind of bumped the dose a little bit as the tolerance formed, it's possible that they could have restored the full magnitude of benefit. But another thing to keep in mind there is that if you completely withdraw the caffeine to the extent that you would actually have withdrawal symptoms, your performance would probably suck in the short term. So, do you think that if you stopped having caffeine and you had
0: withdrawal symptoms, would that be a sign that you're probably having too much too frequently or... That's a genuine question because, again, my caffeine intake admittedly is low these days. Again, it's 100 to 200 milligrams a day, and I don't really go above that. I rarely do. And, of course, then my I had a sore throat for a couple of days. And if I'm not feeling well, I just cut caffeine out because I figure I'm trying to rest, so why caffeinate? And I didn't have any caffeine and feel nothing, of course. But if I were having – you know, one of the guys that works with me is crazy. I don't know why he does this, but he probably averages a gram a day and yes if he if he misses he does not feel good but you know it's cuz he's having too much i mean come on he'll go as high as a gram and a half some days I'm like what are you doing
1: yeah i've got two answers to that question first of all like how high should a person go there are studies in the literature that kind of give a useful kind of upper limit and usually they say like listen if you're going over Usually they'll say somewhere in the like 400 to 600 milligram a day ballpark. They're like, that's getting to the point where you, you're you flirting with a range of caffeine intake that we just don't have a lot of good, reliable research on. If we go and ask a group of people, how much caffeine do you take every day? And we try to correlate that with certain health outcomes. There are certain ranges of caffeine intake that there's just not enough people consuming it for us to fully understand exactly what that means. <laughs> you know, so like <laughs> if you want to just volunteer as a case study and hopefully me and see, you'll just see what happens. Yeah, then. I mean, it's funny. We were talking the other day, not you and I, Greg and I were talking about there was a study that said like it was looking at the effects of caffeine intake up to 25 cups of coffee a day. And the intuitive response if you're from planet Earth is who the hell's drinking 25 cups of coffee a day? And it turns out what they did was they just did a very common grouping exercise in epidemiology where they basically said you either had less than one, one to three, or three to 25. There's no way in that set of data you could actually distinguish between like 24 cups and 21 cups, right? Like there's just almost nobody up there. That's impressive. That's basically drinking coffee all day. (laughs) I was going to say, whenever you're doing survey-based research, you also have the consideration of like, did somebody misinterpret the question or write down the wrong thing by accident? But in any case, yeah, usually if you were to search the literature and say, what's the recommended upper limit in a day, you're rarely going to find a suggestion above 600 milligrams. That doesn't mean that it's a hard cutoff, but that's a number that you might find useful. Obviously, there's a lot of variation there. Talk to your doctor, et cetera, et cetera. Now, withdrawal symptoms. If you have them, does that mean you have too much? When I say withdrawal symptoms when it comes to caffeine, I'm using that very vaguely.
0: Let's say headaches, right? That's a common one.
1: On the lower end, you know, you might find somebody who consistently has caffeine, but the dose isn't too high. They're not super habituated to it, whatever. And when they stop having caffeine, they're just a little more sluggish than normal, right? So we can operationalize that as kind of the lower boundary of what you might consider. Oh, yeah, I'm having some kind of symptom related to my withdrawal from caffeine. Then on the high end, we've got people like your friend. They measure caffeine in grams rather than milligrams. (laughs) And when they stop having caffeine, they have very serious headaches. I've even heard of nausea from caffeine withdrawal. I remember a dude who
0: said, I mean, he said that he hallucinated. I mean, he was, I don't even know how much caffeine he was having. He would drink coffee all day, smoke cigarettes all day. But he said he had literal hallucinations when he stopped. (laughs) His doctor made him stop. Like, you're done with caffeine now.
1: Yeah. So my controversial opinion is if there's any chemical that if you skip it in the morning, you feel seriously ill, yeah, you're having too much.
0: Seems kind of common sense. It's like the, you know, food sensitivity thing. Well, well,
1: why don't we do this? If you eat something and then you feel like shit, how about you just don't eat it? Exactly. Yeah. So I like science. I think my scientific training was cool and useful, but there's certain things that we don't need to study for, right? So if you're having enough caffeine that if you skip it for a morning, you feel ill by the afternoon, yeah, that's too much. You got to walk that back. The thing I want to kind of get in there when it comes to performance and habituation is the current evidence would suggest you don't need to strictly avoid all caffeine if you wish to have a performance benefit, but it would indicate that if you have like a particular event that you really want to leverage all the benefit of your caffeine for that event, it actually might make sense to abstain for at least a week or two, preferably maybe even a few weeks or a month, and then use the caffeine. The reason that I'm so cautious about how long you would abstain is because if you're going to miss with this estimation, you certainly don't want to miss in the short direction. So, the last thing you would ever want to do, well, certainly you don't want to be trying to perform when you're in the midst of caffeine withdrawal, but Ideally, if the whole goal here is that you've got this thing that's important enough to you that you want to make sure you're fully sensitized to the effects, I would say at least a week or two. But if you can afford to do it for three or four weeks, that might be an even better plan. And what if there's no specific event
0: that somebody wants to maximize their performance in but just wants to get a lot out of caffeine or get the majority of caffeine's benefits just in their day-to-day workout routine would there be a kind of like a, a schedule that you'd recommend saying, okay, well then why don't you use it three days a week? Let's say this is something I've done in the past, for example, at least two days a week before my heavy squat and pull and deadlift workout, sometimes three days a week, depending on like what my programming was like. And then on other days, either have none or on one or two of the days for a while, I would have, so two or three days would be like high caffeine days. And then the other days of the weekdays would be lower. And by high, I'd say they're probably four to 600 would be the high, low would be probably one to 200. And then on the weekends, I would have none. And it might not have even been enough to really manage the sensitivity properly, but that's what I've done in the past. Is there something similar that you'd recommend for people who are saying, I could drink the decaf coffee. I don't really care about having caffeine every single day. I really just want to use it for my workouts so I can have better workouts.
1: That, in theory, sounds like a pretty sensible approach. I think a lot of times we kind of trick ourselves subconsciously into thinking that physiology is a bunch of on and off switches when they're really a bunch of dimmer switches. You can turn things up and down. So it's very easy for our uh, human brains to kind of latch on to things as either you do it or you don't. We turn it into a binary thing. In reality, if you wanted to restore kind of the sensitivity of response then certainly you could manage your tolerance without doing full, complete 100% abstention. So I think, you know, how you set that up throughout the week based on your priorities is very open to flexibility, but I think the general premise is a pretty solid idea. Cool. So then
0: have a couple high days, have a couple low days, have a couple off days.
1: Yeah. I mean, and you could take it further and just say like, you know, maybe you decide you do that for a little bit. And then when you really want to try to-
0: Yeah. Go for some PRs or something, then bring it down.
1: If you have some PRs in the future you want to do, you could kind of start with that approach and then kind of crank it. I don't know if you would consider this cranking it up or cranking it down a notch, but you'd say, okay, well, for the next couple of weeks, I'm only going to have caffeine in some very select key times. And then you'd say, okay, now I feel like I'm kind of extra sensitized to it. And now let's go do those PRs and go with a solid ergogenic dose before that. Yeah, that makes sense. Anything
0: else on caffeine? Those are the points I had written out that I thought would people listening would find helpful. I guess there's maybe something to be said for um, it in, in terms of fat loss. It's often viewed as like a, you know, a fat loss supplement. What are your thoughts on that? And obviously, we're talking about its effects on on metabolic rate, calorie burning, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, caffeine is going to acutely increase metabolic rate. A lot of people find that caffeine helps a lot with managing hunger. I come from the bodybuilding background. And if you, if you talk to any competitive bodybuilders, it's their caffeine intakes toward the end of a contest prep. Caffeine intake just gets remarkably gross and inappropriate. (laughs) Like bodybuilders late in prep are just like, yeah, they live from one cup of coffee to the next in in many cases. I'm not a big advocate of fat burner supplements because I find a lot of times they're, you know, aside from a few ingredients with some like, hit or miss research, largely a lot of the fat burners on the market are pretty much just caffeine capsules with some other miscellaneous herbs sprinkled on there. There are applications for fat loss. One thing I do want to mention, some of the newer research, sometimes people wonder, do males and females respond similarly? And there's some new research, some really well done research suggesting that they do. There's a lot more male caffeine research than female caffeine research when it comes to performance We do know that the sex hormones influence the rate of metabolism to some degree, but there is a really well-done recent study showing that males and females have very similar ergogenic responses, specifically when it comes to performance. There are some minor differences in terms of like heart rate responses and stuff like that, but for the stuff that really counts when it comes to performance, they were pretty equivalent. Another cool thing that recently came out was a study showing that caffeine, there's actually, I think, at least three studies now indicating this. That let's say you go do a workout, maybe it it was a particularly hard one, you're unaccustomed to it, you're sore. You know, you have delayed onset muscle soreness, which usually lasts 48 peaks about 24 to 72 hours after. Now, probably want to get back into the gym at some point. There's at least a few studies now indicating that pre-workout caffeine can help mitigate some of that soreness and can help restore performance that would have otherwise been impaired by that soreness. That's neat. I haven't seen that research. How does that work? So, one of the key mechanisms of how caffeine improves performance is by blocking the adenosine receptor. And adenosine is actually pretty closely related to pain. And so, that's one of the reasons why there are certain over-the-counter pain medications that include caffeine in the formula, is because by giving that adenosine blockade, it can actually dull some of those pain sensations. So one of the key mechanisms for performance is that caffeine blocks the adenosine receptor, which blunts pain perception and effort perception when it comes to physical exertion. The theory, again, this is a very small body of literature looking at the soreness stuff, but the theory is that it's acting through those mechanisms such that by blunting that pain perception, the Obviously, the perceived soreness goes down, but also the restoration of performance is observed. A study that came out, I think, last month that indicated that that blunting of soreness was actually greater in males than females, but I'm not convinced that that's the case. You know, I, I reviewed the study pretty thoroughly, and I'm not saying that it cannot be true, but I'd wait to see more evidence before I concluded that there was a real sex difference there.
0: Interesting. That's news to me.
1: Don't feel bad. It, it came out like three weeks ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll wait for it in, to be reviewed in mass. I'm sure, though, there are plenty of. People who have been in the weightlifting game for a while who would attest to that and would say, Oh, yeah, yeah, I've experienced that. Yeah, yeah. I, would think I so. just, it hasn't struck me. I mean, I've been lifting weights for a while and I've I recently actually haven't been having caffeine before I train just because I've wanted to keep my intake relatively low and I like drinking a cappuccino after. So I just do that. But for a long time, I had caffeine before I trained and it never struck me. Uh, maybe because I was so consistently having caffeine before I trained that it was, you know, it had nothing really to compare it to in my mind.
1: You know, the nature of, correlation this is a philosophical stats argument for you the nature of correlation depends on the fact that the two things have to vary you know and so you've got basically people who they either take caffeine all the time or they don't and so there's not a lot of variation there and then when it comes to training you've either got the people who just go crazy and make themselves sore all the time or people who are really highly trained they benefit from the repeated bout effect and they very rarely get sore For much of my years as a bodybuilding-oriented lifter, it's like I'm pretty much accustomed, generally speaking, to this type of training. I don't get excessively sore unless I've taken long layoffs, and I have caffeine always. So, it's kind of hard to pick up on those patterns when there's no variation happening.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Cool.
1: Well, that's caffeine. I mean, I guess one other little just point is the
0: sensitivity effect, the tolerance does It does impact the metabolic boost to some degree, right? As you become more sensitive... You will get less
1: of a, uh, a fat burning boost, so to speak. You mean as you become more tolerant or habituated?
0: Yeah, I don't know if I said that wrong, but as, if you become less sensitive to it, yeah, as you become, uh, as your tolerance, and then you can only take so much, right?
1: I can't think of a specific study off the top of my head looking at that. I'm sure they're out there. I would speculate that, yes, as some of those initial responses to caffeine intake start to become habituated. So, you know, you take caffeine regularly at a given dose, you see that the heart rate response gets blunted a little bit, the blood pressure response, the epinephrine response. I would imagine that the metabolic rate response follows suit. Yeah, it makes sense hey quickly
0: before we carry on if you are liking my podcast would you please help spread the word about it because no amount of marketing or advertising gimmicks can match the power of word of mouth so if you are enjoying this episode and you think of someone else who might enjoy it as well please do tell them about it it really helps me and if you are going to post about it on social media definitely tag me so i can say thank you. You can find me on Instagram at muscle for life fitness, Twitter at muscle for life and Facebook at muscle for life fitness. All right, let's move on to everyone's favorite. Well, maybe it's second favorite. Caffeine is probably everyone's favorite in the weightlifting world. Everyone's favorite, let's say muscle builder, creatine,
1: you know, creatine, is the gold standard whenever a new supplement comes out people say is this the next creatine and so far the answer is always no HMB was supposed to be it right Mm, yeah it was supposed to but it let us down but yeah so creatine the research really kicked off in the early 90s the premise there is that when we do really intense short-term activity uh, we need ATP very rapidly stored phosphocreatine is a very rapid, excellent source of that ATP. And it allows us to fuel exercise that is occurring at rates of ATP depletion that fat and carbohydrate can't really accommodate efficiently. And so if we increase our muscle storage of phosphocreatine, we can facilitate that continued force production and we can keep the exercise going at a high intensity for longer. And so the key types of exercise that really primarily benefit are short-term sprinting and weight training, the types of things where we're doing high force stuff and we need the energy now. Comparatively speaking, creatine is not gonna be your miracle supplement if you're a marathon runner. That doesn't mean there's no application, but that's not really what it's for primarily. Now, when we look at creatine, just to knock out some of the really basic stuff. There's all these forms of creatine out there. Creatine monohydrate is the cheapest. It's the most consistently studied and no alternative form has ever been shown to be more effective. The only thing they've been shown to be is more expensive. Recommendation if that bothers your stomach though, because I know there are people out there whose stomachs don't tolerate it well. Yeah, so if the creatine bothers your stomach and that is a very common observation, there's a few things you can do. You can split it up into smaller doses and have more throughout the day. You can make sure that you're dissolving it very well before you consume it. And so one way to do that is to get a micronized product, although I've still had micronized products that dissolve like crap. I mean, yeah, so mixing it into a hot beverage is very good or mixing it into a more dilute beverage is a way to do that. And I have seen people suggest that when they take creatine HCL, creatine hydrochloride, rather than creatine monohydrate, that that's helpful for them. I haven't seen a lot of actual laboratory research showing that, but I I have heard it anecdotally. There was a study that
0: I remember having the, I may still have the PDF. It was available and then it disappeared. And that was the, this was when creatine HCL was being promoted as the new gold standard and as better than monohydrate. And if I remember correctly, that was the only thing that stood out to me was that was, hey, it mixes really well. It'd be
1: easier on people's stomachs, but I don't have any issue with people saying, "Hey, here's an alternative form of creatine I like," but I usually start with creatine monohydrate in a micronized form, and if people say, "Oh, it hurts my stomach," I say, "Okay, well, let's divide it into two doses throughout the day, and neither dose is greater than 5 grams, and we mix it into a warm beverage, and it's not a caffeinated beverage." And if that still doesn't work, that whole series of strategies doesn't fix it, then I would be like, okay, well, let's look for a different form maybe. Yeah, makes sense. It's also,
0: you're saving them money too because they can just buy monohydrate in bulk and take five grams a day. It's the really the easiest way to do it. You mentioned caffeine. Why not mix them together?
1: There was a study back in, I think, 1996 by Vandenberg et al. The idea was if you're doing creatine loading, 20 grams a day, they thought if you gave a high dose of caffeine with it, then it would actually facilitate muscle uptake of the creatine, okay? And they tried it, and what they found was the muscle uptake of creatine was not influenced by adding caffeine. But they did find that even though the muscles now had more creatine in them, performance was not improved significantly in the group that had caffeine with it. The group that was only having creatine alone did have a significant performance improvement. And so, the question is, what's going on there? And there's been a long line of research since, well, I, I say there haven't been that many studies. It's just been one of those things that since 1996, we've all just been kind of wondering.
0: There have been a few, right? I mean, I've seen a few. There have been a few. It's yeah. gone the other way as well, right? Where it showed that caffeine's effects in terms of performance were additive.
1: Well, so the devil's in the details there. So I'm sure. I'm sure. It's a, Again,
0: that's why I'm actually asking you because I didn't look into it that much. I was just like, that's interesting.
1: So, what you will find is studies showing that if you load creatine alone and then you give caffeine, the caffeine has an additive effect, right? So like, let's say we have two groups, they both load creatine, and then we're going to do a performance test and one gets caffeine before the performance test after the creatine loading. Then we see that there's an additive benefit. But one of the things that's really weird is we haven't actually seen a study showing that if we give a high dose of caffeine daily, while somebody's creatine loading, that the creatine effects are unimpaired by the caffeine. I see. Which is really weird because there's been, I think, at least three studies looking at it. Now, my interpretation, so I talked to one of the like first creatine researchers about this. He like pretty much pioneered the concept of what if we tried supplementing with creatine and like ran the first studies on it. He's very much a legend in the field And his perspective is that one of the main things driving that effect is that people consistently have GI discomfort if we give them high doses of creatine with high doses of caffeine. He's of the opinion that as long as you're being thoughtful about the dosing and the timing of the doses, that they actually can coexist happily, which I think makes a lot of sense. So, what I would tell people is if you are taking both creatine and caffeine and you notice stomach discomfort, you might wanna be thoughtful about your dosing or your timing. Because one of the things to keep in mind here is we're talking about, in the studies that have looked at this, we're talking about 20 grams of creatine a day, which is a lot of creatine. And we're talking about usually five or six milligrams per kilogram of caffeine, which is a lot of caffeine. And so what I usually tell people if that's a problem is, your creatine, get it down to five grams a day, that's more than enough for a maintenance dose. You take your creatine, post-workout or in the evening, you take your caffeine either in the morning or pre-workout, you separate those doses. I think for a lot of people that resolves the discomfort issue that that has been observed several times in the research when high doses of both are combined. Yeah, that makes sense. That's why we left creatine out of our
0: pre-workout. A lot of people ask, why not just put it in there? And this is something that early on Curtis had explained and thought that it made more sense to do exactly what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I have been at events where I'm speaking about this and like the person running the event has a pre-workout product with both and I can (laughs) see them sweating and like...
0: It's all pseudoscience in their world.
1: They don't actually care. So don't worry about it. Well, no, I mean, the thing is, if I'm at their event, like it's always been like charlatans don't invite me out, right? (laughs) So the reason they're sweating is they're like, have I made a huge mistake? (laughs) Like I put both in, no one told me about this. See, The good
0: thing though, is and you can always fix it. Like we all make mistakes. It's not a big deal. Somebody followed up, and we've made changes to formulations where you followed up and you removed the creatine, and maybe you give, throw people a bone and you put something else that might make more sense. Like we recently dropped the beta alanine a little bit in ours and removed ornithine, but gave people alpha GPC as, like, uh, hey, we think this is better, and here's why. Then, and so if you do that and you explain exactly what you just explained, then people go, oh, that's cool. Hey, they're learning, they're improving. Great.
1: Yeah. And the thing I always tell people, though, because I mean, sometimes you have people people who they really, even if they have no financial interest, they love their pre-workout product that they use. And they say, why are you disparaging my combination of things I like? And by extension, my very identity, how dare you? Exactly. But what I do is I say, okay, turn around the tub, look at the label, that caffeine dose, is that six milligrams per kilogram? No, it's way less. Okay, now look at the creatine dose. Is that 20 grams? No, it's usually like three. I'm like, okay, so we're good. The research I'm talking about, it all uses 20 grams of creatine and like five or six milligrams per kilogram of caffeine. So it's possible that the pre workout products that still do contain both, maybe they're fine. Yeah. Maybe they're not. There's always caveats to consider there. Makes sense. We've
0: mentioned loading to load or not to load. That's a question I get asked all the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, so if you load, there are pros and cons. Loading with creatine, there's a higher likelihood you're going to have an upset stomach yeah. just because that it's so much creatine in a given day. A lot of times it's a lot of extra fluid intake, like just subconsciously because you're taking like four creatine containing beverages and you usually add them on top of your normal fluid intake. So, you kind of just feel like a big bloated water balloon for a week. Your serum creatinine, will go up dramatically. So, if you go to the doctor and they draw your blood, they're going to tell you that your kidney's failing. It's not, but it's going to look like it <laughs> based on the, on the blood work. If you have a good relationship with your doctor, you could do that just to troll them. Yeah, exactly. One time I had a, a friend send me their blood work and they were training like a maniac. And they're taking a ton of creatine, really high protein diet. And they're just between their creatine kinase and their uh, creatinine and their liver enzymes. Like if you go to a doctor whoever took this blood thinks you're dead. They don't think you made it home from, 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 from the doctor's office. And he was fine, but it was just like all these things that give you false positives on these tests. You know, I've never been a big creatine loading guy because the real benefit there is that instead of waiting about a month to get the full benefit, if you load, you can probably get there in about a, about a week. You know, five, seven days is typically common, but much higher likelihood that you're going to have an upset stomach and for me, I'm happy to just take five grams a day, you know, three to five grams a day, wait wait for the month and, and I'll be there. Another thing that no one really does, but I actually have done in the past is we kind of treat it like it's this binary thing, right? You either have 20 grams a day or five grams a day. And I'm like, what if you had 10? <laughs> I've never heard of anybody else doing it, but I'm like- Yeah, it's true. If 20 makes your stomach hurt, but you want more than five, why don't you have a dose in the morning, a dose at night, and you'll probably get there- But everyone says it's five. Come on, we know it's binary. It's five or 20. Right. I'm like, well, so if five takes a month and if 20 takes a week, I mean, if you're doing 10... You're splitting it between two doses, morning and night. I don't know, probably like two weeks instead of yeah. four. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like- yeah,
0: my standard recommendation of unloading is no. I mean, I don't know. We're just talking about when you first start taking it and then it's five grams per day for the rest of your life. So, or maybe I guess if you haven't taken it for a while, you could, but for the reasons you've outlined, I generally say just do five grams a day and you won't explode your stomach and, you know, it'll save you a little bit of money and you're not really going to benefit from it other than you'll experience the effects a little bit faster. So, what about uh, creatine and hair loss? I know this is a tough one. I would actually personally like to fund research on this just to answer this question more conclusively. But, you know, there's the people who have male pattern baldness. It runs in their family and they're concerned that because of that study, I think it was with rugby players, right, where it appeared to increase DHT levels and that could make the hair loss worse.
1: Yeah, I mean, so there was one study, as you mentioned, in rugby players, and they showed that, you know, the creatine increased blood levels of DHT. Now, if you're genetically predisposed to male pattern baldness, one of the actual effective ways of delaying going bald is to block DHT. And so the idea is, well, if you're increasing DHT, and you're predisposed to baldness, maybe creatine is accelerating that hair loss via increases in DHT. Now, It's not an implausible premise, and the study did show an increase in DHT, but it's really important to consider the actual values in that study. So if you look at the study, I can kind of envision the table that's in the study right now. I don't remember the exact values off the top of my head, but what you find is there's the creatine group and the placebo group. When the placebo group came in for their baseline testing, their DHT values were, they weren't like shockingly low, but they were significantly lower than when they came in for the creatine treatment. And these are the same people. What they did was if you were in this study, you did the creatine treatment, you waited, you did a little washout period, then you came back and you did the placebo treatment or vice versa. Some people did the placebo first, waited for a while, and then the same people came back and did the creatine. And so what you'll find is even at baseline, the placebo treatment, the DHT values were higher, comparatively speaking, than when they started with the creatine. And so when you look at the actual numbers in the study, it really just looks like the creatine group had a weirdly low value at their first visit, and then it just kind of normalized. And what you'll find is that no point throughout the study did the creatine have an unusually high value for DHT. Even at the highest point, it was well within the reference range and certainly within what you would call a very normal DHT level. So that's the first thing is to be very clear that the DHT levels were not elevated beyond the normal range by any means. Another thing to keep in mind is that we're talking about physiology. Whenever you're talking hormones, we can't assume linearity when it comes to the effects of a hormone, right? So let's say testosterone, the reference range, depending on where you look, it's, so, it's like lower end is like 300, higher end is like a thousand or 1100, right? If you bring in somebody whose testosterone is 560 and somebody whose testosterone is 590, what assumptions can you make about the differences between those two people? Uh, None. (laughs) Yes, nothing. None. I mean, they're functionally the same, right? Now, we know with like testosterone, if you're like well below the reference limit, probably going to be hard for you to put on muscle, you know, as a guy with extremely low testosterone compared to if it was in the normal range. If you go on steroids and have an remarkably high level of testosterone coursing through your veins probably going to get pretty huge but it's not this like perfectly linear relationship it's no no
0: steroids don't make that big. it's just all genetics my dad was a bodybuilder exactly yeah
1: and that's why all the dedication you know no days off that's why all these pro athletes are risking everything they have to get on it right But in any case, so we can't assume that like a small change in DHT level is going to have this huge precipitous change in the rate of hair loss. And again, it would only matter for people who are genetically already predisposed to specifically male pattern hair loss. Different types of hair loss have slightly different mechanisms driving them, which is an important thing to consider. So my takeaway is that if someone tells me, hey, I think creatine is going to accelerate male pattern hair loss, I can't look them in the eye and say, that's ridiculous. There's something there that is worth at least considering, but I don't have any hesitation. If I take creatine, I'm not taking the drink and then thinking, oh boy, here goes my hair. I don't think there's enough evidence to suggest that's the case.
0: I've spoken with Curtis about this. It would be a study that would be fun to fund, just something that could lend more insight to that to give a better answer where it's He thinks, I've spoken to him about this, he thinks it's, like you, he thinks it's almost certainly a no, but he would love to have some better research to be able to point to, to say, look, it's almost certainly a no. Yeah, there are issues with this one study that you already discussed. And then we have this other one that gives us much better insight. Just because it's such a touchy thing for you. I mean, I understand you guys who really don't want to lose their hair. And for them, it's like, hey, if there's even a a 1% chance, I'm just not going to use it because I don't want to take that risk.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I actually empathize with that big time. Like if you're like, listen, I know the risk is fairly minimal, but it's just not a risk I'm interested in. Then I'd be like, fine. Like you're going to be fine without creatine. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) if you're like, you're willing to sacrifice the small potential benefit because you're really worried about hair loss. Like I totally get that. And that's is a risk reward kind of uh, calculation that every individual can make. I'm not convinced that there's going to be a meaningful effect of creatine on the rate of hair loss. But it is one of those things that I'm dying for somebody to come along and do that study. But it's funny, as you mentioned, Greg and I talked about that on our podcast one episode and literally 100% of the feedback. It was like a two-hour episode. Or no, no, I'm, I'm thinking of the article I wrote for Stronger by Science. It was like an enormous article that talked about every facet of creatine research almost all of the comments were about hair loss. And it was like maybe a 300-word section out of a several thousand-word article. <laughs> all right, I'm convinced. I'm funding, I'm getting with
0: Curtis after this. And I want to see, what would it take to actually get this research done?
1: Mike, you wouldn't believe. You would not believe. It was seriously like a 10,000-word article, I think. 300 of the words were about hair loss, and every comment was about hair loss. I'm doing it. Greg and I talked about it on the podcast after, And like his introduction was like, Eric, you wrote like a 10,000 word article, but only 300 of them mattered. (laughs) And then we just talked about the hair loss thing more. So yeah, I know I'm dying to see somebody try to replicate that finding and you know, it'd be very easy, very cheap study, very easy to to run it, very affordable on the funding end, as long as they weren't trying to like gouge you for a bunch of extra money. Even if we just tried to replicate the DHT finding, you don't even have to bring in hair loss experts because the problem is if you want to actually measure hair loss directly, I'm an exercise scientist. I don't know how to measure that. <laughs> we could look into it. I'm sure there are established methods. But another thing to keep in mind is what's the word for a hair scientist? There's a piece of trivia. There's got to be a word out there because the thing I was thinking logistically is if you want to actually track hair loss, that's going to be a long study. Hair loss doesn't happen over 12 weeks, right? I mean, it happens to some degree, but it, if you want to see meaningful, like measurable changes, I would imagine that takes time. But even if you just got somebody to say, hey, come do this study, it's going to take you six weeks start to finish total. You know, it will provide the creatine. It'll be you know a few hundred bucks or whatever. I would love to see that DHT finding either replicated or refuted because it's you know it's this one study that happened many many years ago, and now we're all just still wondering. There's a lot of young men out there that are really concerned about it, and I um, I totally empathize with that concern. So yeah, we need you to step up. I'm all in. Already slacked, Curtis. It's time. Awesome. We we've talked about it. We say, hey, well, I mean that's that's also something
0: that I want to do more of going forward. So you probably know about the lean bulking study that is being run by Eric and James Krieger. And then I've given a fair amount of money to Andy Galpin and Menno for their lean gains study for the IF study. And I've spoken with Curtis where I was like, hey, what's... I I would like to have basically just set a, a certain amount of money aside every year from Legion and just put it into good research that it could be related to supplementation. I would be more interested... In answering questions than trying to sell my stuff. I mean, it might make sense from a marketing perspective to do a study on pulse, for example, just because for some people it's nice for them to see like, oh, there was an actual study done on it. Even though we have a lot of research on the individual ingredients, and I think it's a little bit redundant and a little bit silly, but I understand it from a marketing perspective. More interesting though would be studies supplementation to answer questions like this, simply things that people wonder about. And then there are also some things that Curtis thinks could be interesting where there's just not enough good research on it. Maybe it's just animal research or it's in vitro or it's just limited, but he feels like, hey, this one could be worthwhile. We just don't know yet. We'd have to put some money into finding out, but Hey, if we find out it is worthwhile, we could be the one of the first to bring it to the market. So there's some of that. And then there's just body composition stuff like the lean gains and lean bulking is just funding research to kind of just give back to the community and say, Hey, this study will be helpful because this will add some actual evidence-based data to the discussion around calorie surpluses and how they affect muscle gain. And so anyways, creatine and DHT would be one of the perfect example of like, that would be a paper that would go around and if it were done well, people would appreciate it because they go, hey, great. This is something worth talking about.
1: From a logistical perspective, very easy to carry out, very affordable in terms of the funding. It's one of the few studies where it's like the design is already written and ready to go and you're just like, how has this not been done yet? It's going to happen. Awesome. You mentioned the lean gain study. Grant Tinsley just published a study this month on intermittent fasting with kind of an eight-hour feeding window, 16-hour fast. Um, So, it sounds like that'll be very much uh, of interest to you. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. i tell you what, man, Grant Tinsley, incredible, incredible researcher. I have so much respect for him. The work he does is fantastic. I'm excited to see more. I just pulled it up now. Yeah, I'm excited to see more of the intermittent fasting literature kind of growing with these more applied interventions that are just kind of time restricted feeding windows like a lot of the early stuff that was done in sedentary people is like, if you just like fast two days of the week, but I have much more interest in some of these time restricted windows in people who lift weights to see if that protein distribution is really going to hold you back at all in terms of lean mass. And so far, Grant's done two studies, one in males, one in females, that would indicate that the strength, performance, body composition changes have been quite similar, uh, which would be a very exciting thing. If you don't have to worry as much about your protein distribution, that'd be a pretty cool thing if there was at least some flexibility there when it comes to your preferences.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that he included HMB too. Just because, I mean, not that we need more to shit on HMB, it's already shit on from a perspective of muscle building thoroughly. People who often promote IF or even make their brands around IF will talk up HMB as synergistic with it.
1: Yeah, it was a... A good addition to the paper and Grant and his team did such a good job on it. Really, really good paper. Cool.
0: Well, I have it pulled up. I'm going to check it out. All right. So that's creatine. Oh, one other thing that I think is worth touching on is bloating because, and my understanding is that's not really much of a thing anymore, but I will get people asking and I might be wrong. That's why I'm genuinely asking. My understanding is... When processing methods weren't as good in the past, it was kind of an issue. Now it's not so much of an issue, but I know a lot of people are concerned about that, particularly women. I've heard from a lot of women who don't take creatine because they don't want to get bloated and not because they have done it and been bloated, but they've just heard that, oh yeah, that stuff makes you bloated.
1: Yeah. I mean, bloated is tricky because like some people mean different things when they say it. It makes you look fatter because you have more subcutaneous water. (laughs) I think one of the things that contributes to that is like people often, as I mentioned previously, they kind of subconsciously increase their fluid intake. They feel some kind of GI distress sometimes when they're taking high doses. And then there is some degree of water weight gain because creatine gets stored in the muscle and creatine is it's an osmolite. So it should draw a small amount of water into the muscle. But it should be clear that that's in the muscle so that people shouldn't mix that up. And again, I
0: understand many women have been indoctrinated to live and die by the scale. So they start taking creatine. I guess that's also another common concern that I've heard from women is, you know, they're just a little bit afraid of weight gain and that, okay, they start taking it now they weigh four pounds heavier and psychologically that feels demoralizing.
1: Yeah. I mean, so it's kind of a combination of factors there where where in the short term, the scale might go up just because you're subconsciously having more fluids. It should go up even in a more um, sustained way because you probably will store a little bit more water in the muscle, which should not make you look fatter. It should just make your muscles look bigger, which is cool. But I mean, not to a huge, meaningful degree, by any means, we're talking about you might gain a pound or two of water distributed across your entire body of musculature. So it's not like you're, you know, you're going to look Totally different. Between the GI discomfort and the the fluid intake and the small amount of additional water weight, I think it's easy that a person would be like, wow, I feel really gross and bloated and watery. But purely from an objective standpoint, it should not be something that makes you look fatter. You should expect to have a small amount of increase in water weight. Theoretically, that water should be stored largely within the muscle which should have a net positive effect in terms of looking lean and muscular. I say theoretically because I did find a paper that looked at like intracellular versus extracellular water compartments after creatine loading. Those objective measurements didn't necessarily line up with that perfectly. It looked like there was quite a bit of extracellular water that was increased, but but I'm still kind of working my way through what might be contributing to that. But from an applied perspective of watching people over years and years and years, go from not being on creatine to being on creatine. And from the theoretical perspective of where that weight should be stored and where that water should go, I don't think that bloating is a, a meaningful concern.
0: Makes sense. and We've been going for a while now, but I thought it might be worth just quickly touching on nitric oxide precursors or nitric oxide boosters because they are just so popular and particularly probably arginine and citrulline malate. We don't have to go necessarily as in-depth as we have with caffeine and creatine, but it's just worth giving people some good, simple takeaways on these because they're very popular.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And so I'm going to plug something here, just because we don't have a lot of time. I wrote an article at strongerbyscience.com. So you go to strongerbyscience.com/slash-nitric-oxide. And so my dissertation for my PhD was about citrulline malate and beetroot juice, which are two very different nitric oxide stimulators. And. That article contains all my thoughts on arginine, citrulline, nitrate, beetroot juice. So if you hear some of what we're about to say and it sparks your interest, go to that article. It's totally free. Don't buy anything. And all the information is there really clearly laid out. But in short, nitric oxide is a signaling molecule that's in our bloodstream. And I mean, it's all over the place in our body. It has a lot of different roles in the body, but the one that everybody is uh, kind of associates it with is blood flow. So way back in the day, supplement companies said arginine is a precursor to nitric oxide. So if we supplement with arginine, it should increase blood flow, which should enhance performance. It should make our muscles swell up when we lift, which even if that doesn't influence performance would still be fun, you know, to feel huge in the gym. And I mean, who doesn't love getting a good pump, right? We know Arnold Schwarzenegger does. That's part of the ritual is, I mean, if
0: you're not getting a pump, you're doing something wrong.
1: Right. So, some people just show up for the pump alone. But to try to summarize the research pretty concisely, what we found over time is that arginine actually is not a great nitric oxide precursor because there's a lot of breakdown that happens in the gut before the arginine can actually get into the bloodstream. Another problem is we can't just supplement with nitric oxide itself because nitric oxide's half-life. We talked about caffeine being like five to eight hours, maybe four to eight hours. When we talk about nitric oxide's half-life, we're talking about maybe one second. So, you know, if you were to supplement with it, great, it's gone. So we need to do a precursor. Arginine gets broken down too much by the gut. And so citrulline is actually the precursor to arginine but it doesn't get broken down extensively in the gut. So what we found is if you supplement with citrulline, it will increase blood arginine, which will then facilitate nitric oxide production in theory. Now, nitrate and beetroot juice, they increase blood levels of nitrate, which is then converted to nitrite, which is then converted to nitric oxide. So it's two very different pathways, but these are two very viable nitric oxide precursors. Now, I am not sold on the fact that for resistance training, that increasing blood flow is necessarily why nitric oxide boosters are potentially effective. It might be something that simply happens as a fairly inconsequential side effect when it comes to resistance training. I think you could make the case. There's certainly some evidence showing that citrulline malate and nitrate both enhance resistance training performance to some degree. Citrulline malate, I published a meta-analysis on it this past year in a scientific journal. And not all the studies show benefit, but there are some that do. Similarly, there are some studies showing that nitrate or beetroot juice enhance muscle force or strength performance. And I'm convinced that it has more to do with nitric oxide's effect on muscle directly than nitric oxide's effect on blood flow. But in any case, the kind of take home straight to the point conclusions that you can kind of jot down and chew on for a while, citrulline malate at a ratio of two parts citrulline to one part malate at a dose of eight grams taken one hour before a workout, there is evidence to suggest that that could be something that has a small but positive effect on strength performance when it comes to nitrate, which is, you know, beetroot juice is a source of nitrate. If you have a dose of somewhere between 400 to 800 milligrams of nitrate consumed two to three hours before a workout, again, there's some evidence that that might enhance muscle force strength performance. Those are kind of the take home points. One cool thing about nitrate that I like to always remind people is, this gets back to our point about what supplements are. You can actually get a performance enhancing dose of nitrate from the diet. You don't necessarily have to supplement with it. Citrulline, you're probably not going to do that.
0: And how would you go about that? That piques someone's interest like,
1: oh, like how exactly? What should I be eating? Yeah. So nitrate is present in a lot of different fruits and vegetables. You could get it from beets, spinach, celery, pretty much any green leafy vegetable. Those are usually very good sources of nitrate.
0: Which is convenient because you should be doing that anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that's tricky with nitrate is that even in conventionally grown produce, the actual measured nitrate value in a particular food can vary quite a bit based on its growing conditions and its storage conditions. And so some people say, well, Eric, what if I eat all these high nitrate foods, but I get unlucky and they're all low in nitrate at a particular time? Then I say, well, I'm sorry, but you just ate a bunch of vegetables, so you're going to be fine. (laughs) <laughs> you should have had them anyway, even if they didn't have nitric Exactly. Good job. Good job. Your side effect here of your flawed intervention is that you accidentally ate a bunch of vegetables. You're probably going to live longer. Like, sorry. <laughs> With a, a lower risk of cancer. Fantastic. Exactly. So that's kind of the straight to the point summary of nitric oxide boosters. And, and again, the article that I wrote really gets into a lot of detail. I did my dissertation on it. So <laughs> like, it's like the one area of thing, that I'm supposed to know a lot about. So, I think the article will cover most of people's questions about it. So, it's going to be like old school examine level detail. I think it's conversational. I think it's intuitive when you read it, but there's a lot of information. That's for sure. (laughs) Cool, cool. Well,
0: hey, man, this has been great and I really appreciate you taking the time. And you obviously have mentioned it a couple times now, but in case anybody missed, maybe they skipping along or, you know, skipping ahead or whatever, where can people find you and your work. And this is also a great time to shamelessly plug mass again.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm not capable of shame anymore, so I can take this opportunity.
0: Perfect. That's the first thing. To be a good marketer, you have to lose any (laughs) sense
1: of dignity. And that's the first step. Perfect. That's never been a problem. So yeah, I'm Eric Trexler. You can find me on Facebook at that name. You can find me on Instagram at Trexler Fitness. I am on Twitter, but I never use it, so not a good option. I'm the director of education for Stronger by Science, so you can find me at strongerbyscience.com. And like I mentioned, I'm one of the four reviewers for MASS, which stands for Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. Every month, we put out really nice reviews of the 10 most interesting studies in the area of strength training and nutrition. So, you can subscribe to Mass. It comes the first day of every month. Actually, today in our conversation, we talked about studies that either have shown up in previous editions of Mass or that are actually coming out in the upcoming edition, which comes out September 1st. Perfect. All right, Eric. Thanks again. I look forward to the next one. Uh, Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on
0: and take care. Hey, Mike here, and if you like what I'm doing on the podcast and elsewhere, and if you wanna help me help more people get into the best shape of their lives, please do consider picking up one of my best-selling health and fitness books, including Bigger, Leaner, Stronger for Men, Thinner, Leaner, Stronger for Women, my flexible dieting cookbook, The Shredded Chef, and my 100% practical and hands-on blueprint for personal transformation inside and outside of the gym, the little black book of workout motivation. Now these books have sold well over 1 million copies and have helped thousands of people build their best bodies ever. And you can find them on all major online retailers like Audible, Amazon, iTunes, Kobo, and Google Play, as well as in select Barnes and Noble stores. Again, that's Bigger, Leaner, Stronger for Men, Thinner Leaner Stronger for Women, The Shredded Chef, and The Little Black Book of Workout Motivation. Oh, and I should also mention that you can get any of the audiobooks 100% free when you sign up for an Audible account, which is the perfect way to make those pockets of downtime, like commuting meal prepping and cleaning more interesting entertaining and productive so if you want to take audible up on that offer and if you want to get one of my audiobooks for free go to www.legionathletics.com slash audible that's l-e-g-i-o-n athletics slash a-u-d-i-b-l-e and sign up for your account